As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash UNTCares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features conversations with UNT faculty, other subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I am speaking with Robin Cole Jett, the Red River historian. Texas born and raised, Robin received her bachelor's degree from East Texas State University, a master's of education from the University of North Texas, yay, and a master of arts and history from Texas Women's University. She has also completed doctoral work in higher education and anthropology. Wow, that's impressive. Welcome, Robin. Hi, thank you for having me. It's awesome to have you here. I've been so excited to talk to you. I moved from New York. Oh, I guess maybe it's been three years now. So you're a terrific person for me to talk to. Well, first of all, you have this wonderful moniker, the Red River Historian. I love it. I love the sound of it. What sparked your interest in the Red River Valley and all of these other things known to Texas? It's been a long time since I started I started as a website, actually. It's called redriverstory.com. I started this about 20 years ago, it seems like. It may not be that long, but it seems that long ago. And it was just kind of what I love to road trip. And I'm from the Red River Valley. And so all the places I found, I decided, well, let's just put them all together. So the website started developing that way. And I started to write some articles about the Red River Valley to other publications and then started writing articles on my website. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. This has defined me for the last 20 years or so. That's why I call myself the Red River Historian, because no one else has claimed the title. And I just really enjoy it. And it's just it's my life. So there we go. (laughs) Well, you have such a remarkable list of books and tours. You have ghost towns, which sounds pretty neat. Uh, As a photographer, I, that sounds awesome. That sounds amazing. Ghost towns, cattle trails, Bonnie and Clyde, just to name a few. But also I was looking at your website and I saw something that I had never heard of before, a calaboose. Yes. Explain that to the listeners if they're like, probably everybody else knows it, but I didn't know it. Uh, Calaboose is a weird word because, first of all, I like to always joke, how do you say the uh, plural of calaboose? Is it calabese, calabice, calabooses? (laughs) What a calaboose is, is it comes from uh, the Spanish word, I think, for dungeon, calabozo, 
but it's not really a dungeon. What it is, it's just a simple concrete, sometimes a brick structure. Every once in a while, you'll find a wooden structure. Just one room. Sometimes it has multiple rooms, but they're cell. These are what cities put up as small jails. When they had to, for example, you had the town drunk coming in and you had to go put them somewhere for the night, keep them safe, but also you know, if they had anything naughty or something like that. Another word for it would be like the town's who's gal, that kind of thing. Again, these weren't county jails. They were for the cities or for towns or little villages and so forth. Often when somebody was in there, they would either spend the night and then leave the next day after everything was calmed down or they were sent over to the county jail. But these little towns had a little place to hold people that were accused of crimes. And every once in a while, you can still find evidence of this frontier justice around just pretty much everywhere, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana. But along the Red River, I've been collecting pictures of them because they're so neat. Once you find them, especially if you find them in their original locations, usually behind a police station or something like that, usually behind the main street or something, it's really neat to find those things. I wonder how many people have walked by them and had no idea what they were looking at. I mean, I, I know one of them surprised me, and it was not far from me. It's in Grapevine. The picture that you have is just right there on the road. I would walk by it and think, what is that, a little bus stop thing? Or It was not that big. At least it didn't look that big. They weren't meant to be big. It wasn't. It was just supposed to be spending one night inside there. And it was outside in the elements, too. It's not like it's part of a larger structure. You know, you weren't inside a, a building or anything like that. You were just placed in the cell. If it was cold, then it was going to be cold in the cell. If it was hot, then it's going to be hot in the cell. And the one in Grapevine, it's actually really neat because it's more arched than it is a rectangular structure. And it housed one nefarious criminal. I mean, it housed probably several of them, but the one that tends to be more recognized is Floyd Hamilton. And Floyd Hamilton was part of, um, every once in a while, he was part of the Barrow Gang. Honey and Clyde. And the one in Grapevine, what's neat is that the city of Grapevine actually moved it. It was, I think it was behind their police station or their city hall. And they moved it onto Main Street of Grapevine so people could see it because otherwise they wouldn't be seeing it because most people don't go behind the stores over in Grapevine. But that was actually moved and now they have a historical marker and all that there. So I love it that Grapevine preserved its little piece of history on that. So that was an interesting story about the one in Grapevine. Are there any others that have stories to go along with them? I would suggest, you know, especially if you're here in the area in Dallas, Fort Worth, Denton area and so forth, just go down over to Kaufman County, a little town called Kemp. Kemp, Texas has a bricked calaboose. Again, it's just this one room jail cell and it, it is behind the police station. There's an alleyway and there's also a playground next door to it too. <laughs> but that's where Bonnie Parker spent the night after she and Clyde and Ralph Fultz decided to try to hold up a hardware store. And that didn't work. The town alarm went off. Everybody came out to try to find the people that were trying to rob the hardware store. And Clyde got away, but Bonnie and Ralph, Ralph got shot, actually. And so Bonnie and Ralph did not get away, and they ended up inside the calaboose. 
and everybody at night, you know, they were all looking at inside the windows and apparently Bonnie was hissing at everybody and she gave everybody, she gave um, the police fake names and all that. But then after that, she was transferred to the Kaufman County Jail. But so that calaboose is still standing in Kemp, Texas. Kemp is just this little tiny town. It's, it's really cute anyway to go see. It has nice downtown architecture, but the calaboose really brings out a lot of the history of, of the town. Well, you actually give a tour on Bonnie and Clyde, don't you? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. It's a four-hour tour because I, I talk a lot. <laughs> um, but, um, we, what I do with Bonnie and Clyde, because it's not just, you know, we talk, of course, about Bonnie and Clyde because they grew up in Dallas. They were not from Dallas, but they grew up in Dallas. But to me, it's the city of Dallas is the other main character. So we start in West Dallas and then go all the way into by Bachman Lake in that area and then go to downtown, what they call Uptown now, and then go into Old East Dallas and then downtown all the way then back over to Oak Cliff, you get to see the city of Dallas and many places of the city of Dallas along with Bonnie and Clyde sites. I do that usually for just a private group. Sometimes somebody wants to hire a van or a bus, I can do that. But mainly it's just for up to four people. And um, it's a it's a fun day. It's a it's a real fun thing to do. Sounds like it. Well, let's talk about the ghost towns along the Red River. Are there some that particularly stay with you? I mean, I just, the thought of ghost towns, to be quite honest with you, I haven't really explored that much since I've been out here. But just the thought of it sounds really intriguing to me. Ghost towns are all over the United States. So, you know, you said you were from New York and there are ghost towns all over the place in, in New York State because what happens is people just, they shift where they live. Here uh, along the Red River, often people shifted because of transportation. A railroad came through, but it did not come through this old town. So people started moving to a newer settlement, but they left a little bit of the old settlement behind, or there were people that stayed in the old settlement because of whatever reasons. So sometimes these old settlements that then, you know, they lose their post office, they lose their population. They can stick around for a while until they lose their school. Once, to me, a community loses their school, then it's no longer really a community because if your kids are dispersed, if your children have to go to different towns to have a school, if you no longer have that community feel, because that's what a school does. It just brings out the community together. For Of course, that doesn't mean everybody doesn't bicker or anything like that. It's just that it brings out a feeling of, of unity. And once that's gone, then the town goes. These are dotted all over the United States, but around the Red River, I like it because of course, you know, you can actually go and visit these places and there's a lot of remains left over. So not just cemeteries. Sometimes ghost towns just have cemeteries and that's pretty, I like cemeteries, but I really like the ones that have the buildings left over and sometimes even the schools are left over. They're empty now and that's sad, but it does also provide quite a bit of opportunity to take pictures and to really enjoy the, the scenery that's there. My favorite ghost town by far, I have several. Okay, so let me think. You don't have to just pick one. Great, <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. There is one, it's called Fulton, Arkansas. It's around the what they call the Great Bend of the Red River. It's where the Red River stops going from the west, which is it originates in Palo Duro Canyon, and then it goes eastward over into Arkansas. And then over by Fulton, Arkansas, it kind of, it just dives down and then it becomes Southward River. So it goes north-south. So it goes from east-west to north-south after that Great Bend. And that's where Fulton was. 
And Fulton started in like 1819. It's a very old town. It's actually a town that Stephen F. Austin, when Austin's colony started coming into Texas, that's where he set up his a supply store. So as his colonists were coming into Mexican Texas, they were able to supply themselves for the long journey over to his to the land grant that he received. And Fulton was at the Red River at that Great Bend. It was also a, it was not just a ferry crossing. It was also where a famous trail called the Trammel Trace came through, where a lot of immigrants came through, but also a lot of outlaws and that kind of thing. But it was also the border crossing between the United States and Spanish Texas and then Mexican Texas. So it was an international place for a while. But because it was on the Red River, it always flooded and that kind of thing. But it was still, I mean, up until the 1960s, it was a viable town, functional town. And then the interstate came through and it bypassed Fulton. And when the Interstate 30 just kind of zipped on by there, and Fulton was still on what's called the Bankhead Highway. It still had a train coming through and it still does have a train coming through, but it no longer stops. The school went away. You can't even access the cemetery at Fulton anymore. And we're talking about it's an old, old cemetery. And you can't even access mm-hmm. it anymore. It's very sad what happened to Fulton. But if you go there, you can still see a lot of remains of the town. And there are still people that live there. It's just that the, the town kind of just went away. It just kind of blew away, if you will. So there's Fulton, another ghost town, Boggy Depot, which is sounds weird, Boggy Depot, but it was actually the capital of the Chickasaw Nation up until the 1850s, when then the Chickasaw Nation cleaved from the Choctaw Nation in 1855, and then the Chickasaw Nation realized that Boggy Depot, which was their capital, was actually inside the Choctaw Nation when they surveyed it, so they moved their capital to Tishomingo, and so Boggy Depot still hung on until the railroad bypassed it. Boggy Depot now is a is a historic site run by the Choctaw Nation, and it is really interesting because it has a very it has a fascinating cemetery. It was also a site of a Civil War battle or a skirmish, really, and that's up in Oklahoma. It's just up the road here. Um, you take seventy five, you go up to Atoka, and it's right there. Why do you say fascinating cemetery? Yeah, the cemetery that's neat because um, it has uh, several old and neglected graves, which makes it really interesting. Uh, Several graves from the Civil War era, as well as several graves that um, this is my only experience with the haunting that I had in Boggy Depot. That was what I was going to ask you next. Okay, good. (laughs) Um, And I'm not sure what happened. This this is my story. Okay. I'm in the middle of the day. So it's not like creepy or anything. I don't go there at night. Of course not, because you can't take pictures at night. So I go there during the day. It's a beautiful day. It's early spring. And I'm taking pictures at the at the cemetery. I'm the only one there. There are some tombstones that is a mother and daughter, I think, and they were standing together. And so I go in between them, which I shouldn't have done, but I went in between them to take pictures and I suddenly start smelling perfume and I wasn't wearing perfume that day. And so I'm thinking, well, that's odd, but I didn't think anything of it. I was thinking, well, maybe it's the cedars, you know, they're giving off some scent or something like that. And then I'm taking more pictures with my digital camera. And this is when the digital cameras had a display on the top. Of course, a digital display, but it started acting strange. And I started looking through my screen where I would normally see the pictures before I take them or, you know, the images. And the screen turned all staticky, like it was white snow. And it's never done that before. 
And I tried to turn it off and it would not turn off and not turn off, not turn off. And that's when I started thinking, maybe something's going on here. Maybe this is some sort of, you know, something's communicating with me. So I start walking back to the car. I don't run. I just walk back to the car slowly. And I do say, I am so sorry for disturbing you. I said that too, you know, because there's no one out there with me. I actually changed the batteries on the camera, but while I was changing the batteries, the static was still going on, which is weird. And then at the end of it, you know, once the batteries were redone, because I was thinking, well, maybe this is a battery issue. Then finally it stopped and it could function again. But in that display area where it told me how many pictures I've taken and so forth, an ink stain appeared and it's still there. And I don't, I still have that camera and I have no idea where that ink stain came from. And I don't know if I, what I captured there. And I really don't want to know. <laughs> did you go back? Did you ever go back there? I did several times and I've never had any problems since then. I bet you didn't walk the way you, the same path, right? Did you not go the same way? I never go between tombstones again. I try not to walk on any places where I know that the, the dead are, Yeah, but usually it's like six feet long and so forth. Sometimes that's hard, but I definitely don't go between tombstones anymore. I just, I just realized that not, that's not good. That's not good. Interesting. Yeah. I had wondered about that with the ghost towns, if there'd been any reportings of that kind of thing. I assume there must be. There are. Again, I didn't have anything that really, sometimes you get kind of weird feelings and so forth, but I just chalk that up to me being a big horror movie fan. <laughs> Again, I've never felt scared. I've encountered just weirdness and that kind of thing, but never scared because, and I'm always alone. I, I like to travel alone. I don't like it with people or anything because I go where I need to go. And, and if I want to go here, there, and the other way, I, I just like doing that. And it's not scary, but there's been not that many times. Again, Boggy Depot, there may have been a couple of other times. It's kind of weird, but it's always after the fact. It's not when it's happening that you say, oh, here, you know, scary. It's just after the fact, you're like, well, that was kind of strange. Yeah. Yeah. I had a funny experience one time in an old, old hotel in New Jersey. Like it had been, I don't remember, 18, I want to say 1830. Anyway, I had this experience with my car keys and I won't take the time to explain it, but I couldn't find them. And I mean, I looked everywhere, looked everywhere and had people looking everywhere. Anyway, long story short. I walked by the bed and there they were sitting on my jacket, which I had looked at, looked through and whatever. So when I went downstairs for dinner that night, I was kidding. I passed the innkeeper and I said, well, you know, you must have a ghost here. And kind of looked at me and I said, ha 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 ha. And he said, she's friendly. <laughs> She just likes to play around with things and hide things and then put them back. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Now, the person I was with, I was with a friend of mine, and she was, she was like, I don't want to go back in the room. I was like, ah, she's friendly. Don't worry about it. We didn't have anything like that after that. But I'm like you. I don't know what it was. But honestly and truly, we had looked and looked and looked. And I was kidding when I talked to the innkeeper, and apparently it happens all the time. Mm -hmm. So it was an interesting story. Well, it's interesting you say Red River historian. Texas and the area around Texas is a big state. So why, why Red River? I mean, why that? And what is it about the Red River? It is a conduit for history, if you will. For example, the history of North Texas 
where we talk about the history of Denton County. Well, nothing of that, that does not exist in a vacuum. Everybody is connected in some way throughout the area. You have Denton County. Well, the people that came from Denton County um, or came to Denton County often came from actually Lamar County first. John B. Denton, for example, what Denton County is named after, he was first in Lamar County and then moved over into Denton County to take advantage of land, Peter's Colony, that kind of thing. John S. Chisholm, the famous cattle rancher, he was not the Chisholm Trail guy, but the cattle rancher, he also was actually the county clerk of Lamar County. And I mentioned John B. Denton, he was in Red River County too. So again, all of this is interconnected. And so I start, as I was doing my research along for history and, and seeing all these different connections, I realized that one thing that really bound everyone was the river. Not necessarily in traffic, not a bunch of steamboats and so forth, because the steamboating and, and all that kind of fizzled out as soon as most places went over to Fort Townsend, which is today a historic site over in Oklahoma. There wasn't a whole lot of steamboat traffic beyond that west of Fort Townsend, Oklahoma. But still, when people came into the Red River Valley, they they were part of that whole if you will, the history that bound everybody together. And so I just started seeing those connections and being the geographer that I am, somebody who really loves the maps and loves to see how things are connected with trails and traces and all these things, I started seeing the Red River as that tie that bound everything together. What I also say about the Red River is that it is where the South meets the West. That's kind of my tagline there. And it's because the Red River is also fascinating. It's about 1,300 miles long. So it's a pretty long river. And it's the last of the major rivers to enter the Mississippi. It's the southernmost river to enter the Mississippi River. And in Louisiana and in Arkansas, it is definitely what they call Southern River. That's a plantation system was there. Actually, the first French plantations were they were not in New Orleans. They were actually along the Red River over by Natchitoches, Louisiana. And then once you get past Arkansas and you go into today's Oklahoma and then, of course, uh, Texas, that's the ranching culture. You have the big cattle ranches and the cattle trailing and all that. So that's where I say the South, this historic South meets the historic west along the Red River in a place that really no other area does where it, that kind of, oh, how would I put it? It's very unique, very unique in that no other river has that where you have the southern way of, you know, the southern history part, not really southern way, but southern history part. And then you have that western history part of the ranches and the, the cattle driving. And so put it all together and it makes for a fascinating way to explain why people live here, why they came over here, what the people that lived here before Anglos came in, before African-Americans came in and that kind of thing. And it just brings everything together. Well, it was big in cotton. Did that have anything to do with the Red River Trail? Did they ship cotton that way or did it have anything to do with the history? Because I know cotton is big in Texas history. Cotton was not really shipped over the Red River from Texas because, again, the Red River itself was not navigable as much, except for only a few months out of the year. Most of the time in Texas, cotton and cotton farming in Texas actually developed after the Civil War, and it came in, in tandem with the railroads coming through. So most of the merchants in the farms and so forth, they actually used the railroads more. But in places like Louisiana and even into Arkansas, they used the Red River to haul cotton 
along their plantations. But here's the other interesting thing about the Red River. It was, again, I mentioned the word unique, which is often not something that you really want to say in history because every place is different. Every place is unique. But in the Red River before 1830s, before 1870s, really, there was what they call the Great Red River Raft. It was this huge log jam that pretty much dammed the river from Natchitoches northward. It created all these bayous. We're talking about 100 miles wide to up 100 miles long with trees literally growing on top of trees. It was so dammed up. When that was removed, first by Henry Shreve in the 1830s, and then later on, it finally was completely removed by Lieutenant Woodruff in the 1873 around there. Before that, uh, all of that cotton merchant so forth that was concentrated really along that Red River in Louisiana. And then it would come later on into Arkansas and Texas once the the raft was removed. But that raft was such an incredible big, I mean, it was, it created its own ecosystem. It truly did. It was uh, described as something so very unique, but once it was removed, the whole ecosystem was drained. It was um, something that no other river in the United States had, which was this loggy, incredible, just bayou, swamps, everything like that. And it was all removed. Had it been there, had the raft been there a long time? Or I mean, what caused it? Was it caused by people settling along the river and trees coming from clearing land? Or what was this reason for it? The Red River Raft was caused by flash floods, pretty much. And it was there for thousands and thousands of years, perhaps hundreds of thousands of years. No one knows for sure. But what happened was in the western part of the Red River, so over here, like, for example, in Cook County, which is just north of here from Denton, when the river floods, often the the shorelines are very silty and sandy. So when the river floods, it takes away all of the, the trees that are around there. And then the trees just keep going down river as they keep being moved by these flash floods. And sometimes, you know, in the Red River, of course, like every river has elevation changes. And so they would hold those trees and then the trees would start building up on top of each other. And as more flash floods would happen, that's what happened again. You'd have this this happening because, again, the Red River did not have shores that were cliffs or rocky shores or something. Instead, it was just sand and silt. And because of that great bend along at Fulton, what happened was then that would clog up the river because of how sharp that bend would be where all these this debris was coming in. And then there was more debris for more floods and so forth. So it would just build and build and build upon each other until you had this incredible log jam just north of what's today Natchitoches. That was what they call the Grand Accord, which was a big bluff that looked out onto the Red River. It's one of the highest elevations along the Red River. That's where the log jam started. It created these, again, swamps and bayous, and again, 100 miles wide, 100 miles long. These, just this huge, incredible log jam with alligators and parakeets and, and cougars and all sorts of animals. And it was just, it was an incredible sight to see. I can only imagine the change in the ecology when, who, what did you say his name was that cleared that? 
It was Captain Henry Shreve who cleared it in 1830s. He received the federal contract to do it because there had been attempts before that by Americans. When I say by Americans, the French did not try. It was a French colonial issue, but they did not try. And it was the Americans who tried to clear it. And then once they had federal monies from Clay's American system, they decided to put federal monies into that. And Henry Shreve was a very prominent riverboat captain, as well as he actually developed what's called a snag boat. And it was a specific snag boat that could pick up logs using saws that were on board, powered by steam engines. They could saw through these logs. It didn't work all the time because the Red River log jam was just too big. But he's the first one to do it. And then they ran out of money because in 1836 was the first American Great Depression and they everybody ran out of money. And so he said, OK, it's, the log jam's going to come back. It's going to come back. And sure enough, it does. That's when in 1873, Lieutenant Woodruff, he was, a, was another federal raft removal and he used nitroglycerin to clear it. And once he cleared that, it completely changed the channel for the Red River. It removed all of the raft, save for just a little bit. And if you go now to Caddo Lake State Park, over close to Uncertain, Texas, which is over by Jefferson, Texas, you can see the remains of the raft. It's a very small remain of what used to be this gargantuan logjam. Wow, that's so interesting. And what what terrific name, Uncertain Texas. <laughs> I love it. Well, was everybody ha- okay with that? I mean, I, I, even the people downriver, that would have to make a big change with them. And what about the people along the bayous and all of that? The Caddo people, the, the Caddoans, who had lived along the Red River for hundreds and thousands of years, they, of course, most likely were not okay with that because this was their homeland. But by then, by the time that Henry Shreve came in there, the Caddoans had been decimated by disease and by forced removals. They literally lost all of their land due to all these different treaties that they, were, they, they signed with the United States. They tried to sign treaties with Mexico. Mexico was perfectly fine with them, with Caddoans coming in to settle Mexican Texas, but then the revolution happened and the Texas Revolution, they did not honor Indian land grants. They honored Anglo land grants, but not Native American land grants. So the Caddoans lost that land as well. So they had no say in what was happening. And then the people who were downriver, they saw it as an improvement of progress. But what's interesting is when Henry Shreve removed part of that raft, there were so much debris, so many trees that he couldn't just try to chomp them all up with a sawmill. At one point, he just had his crews move the the logs from one channel to another one. So he actually created a whole nother log jam, a whole other bayou. So that in order to open up the main channel, he just kind of moved the logs. And what ends up happening is when he creates this new jam or this new back water, I guess you could say, it opened up a bayou called Big Cypress Bayou. And that's how Jefferson, Texas was able to become a large city because now Big Cypress Bayou could hold steamboats and paddle wheelers and so forth. It became a deep water port all the way into Texas. And so Jefferson became this queen city of, uh, you know, the Red River along Big Cypress Bayou until Lieutenant Woodruff came in, took his nitroglycerin and blew everything up. And once he did that, it drained eventually. It took a few years, but it drained Big Cypress Bayou. And then suddenly Jefferson found itself dry docked. So that one, people weren't happy with that. 
And then every time there was a raft removal, it would make the river go into one channel versus the other. And so a plantation or a farm that was along the river and they used that river to transport goods, suddenly they couldn't do it anymore because the river was gone. The river had shifted. And so they didn't like that either. So um, it sounded like progress, but what really happened was it was an assault on the ecology. You mentioned ecology and that perfect word for it. It was an assault on the ecology on a natural landscape. Instead of just dealing with the natural landscape, Americans decided to fight it. And so we ended up with a lot of political and a lot of social problems, as well as a lot of um, environmental problems from it. That is so interesting. I had never heard that story before. And I can imagine during that time, they probably didn't have a lot of experts in the environment (laughs) being able to say, well, when you do this, yes, this will free this up for people. However, there are other ramifications that you perhaps have not considered yet. (laughs) I don't think there was a lot of that going on at the time. No, there was. It just was this idea that there was progress, that everything that could help make people prosperous was a good idea. There wasn't really much of a thought of what will happen to the natural ways, the, the habitats of animals, habitats of the people who had already lived there. And there was some lamentation, you know, individuals who would lament the fact of what happened. But it definitely was always just, a, you know, a forward moving thing rather than thinking what would be the ramifications. Another example is with railroads. When the railroads came through, that's when the Red River stopped having its steamboats. You know, the steamboats stuck around for just a few more years, but often it was just for fun excursions rather than actually using it to transport goods. And the railroads became the big mover of things, which, you know, it sounds like, of course, why wouldn't they use a railroad? Then they don't have to worry about the river, if it's going up, going down, if there's a flood, if there's a drought or something like that. But the river was an equalizer. You know, if you had access to the river, just like you have access to a road, you can just simply on the river, you just simply create yourself some sort of boat and float your stuff down the river and the river's free. Same thing with the road. You just make yourself a cart. You put yourself there. Hopefully you have a horse or something. You'll have to pull the cart yourself and you just go down and then you're able to sell your goods. But with the railroad, it's different. Of course, you have to pay to put your stuff on the railroad. The government then gives uh, money, incentives to build the railroads. So the ramifications, the um, consequences of it is much more dire than we think. The loss of steamboat travel on the Red River, the loss of using the river as a conduit was not really something that people wanted. The people who lived along the river, the small time farmers and so forth, it's what politicians and people who had money wanted. So that's a whole other part of the Red River that's a fascinating thing to to look at. You have such an amazing knowledge about so many different things. What your expertise covers a wide expanse. Is there anything that I haven't talked about or asked you about that might be interesting that you'd like to bring up? A big interest of mine, and I've been, um, I love transportation. I know that sounds so boring. You know, oh my gosh, what's what she talking about infrastructure for? But infrastructure is, to me, always the key to any kind of government, anything that we do, it's always about infrastructure. So I love talking about old roads. 
in our area along the Red River, and I'm just going to focus on Denton County and just this, this area here, we had a lot of what they called the named roads that came through. This was way back when, when automobiles or really the bicycles first started. People started moving around bicycles then with automobiles and so forth. In the Red River Valley, we've had the Jefferson Highway, there's the Bankhead Highway, the Lee Highway, all of these wonderful named roads that I find very interesting. There are ways to retrace these old roads if you want to take a really cool road trip. I do have a class proposed to Ollie for the summer, and it's about roads. It's about the old roads that you could still travel on. And again, it's not just this highway was once an old road. Rather, I take you to using the actual roads that used to be these old highways. So, for example, Elm Street in Denton used to be the old US 77, which used to be called the old Hobby Highway. And I can take you to all the different places to see the original roadbed. And so that's going to be one of the classes, if Ollie decides to accept it, that's one of the classes that I propose. So that would be fun to talk about. That is so cool. So you have a lot of different tours. How do you work that? Well, first of all, COVID must have certainly affected your ability to give tours. It did. Now that things seem to be shifting, I'm I'm very optimistic. So what is your usual tour number like? Do you have to have a certain number to give a tour? You give tours to, you know, if I had people visit me at my house, could I contact you and say, hey, I want to, I want to check out those roads or I'd like to check out that ghost town or whatever. Yeah. The one that you had your camera thing with. <laughs> <laughs> what I do is um, on the tours and so forth, somebody wants to just take a tour, you know, of what I, the knowledge that I've gained and so forth. That's where I, you know, I have a, a several books that are like traveling history with the, uh, along the cattle trails. So you can retrace the cattle trails or you can go traveling history among the ghost towns and you can go look through the ghost towns. I have traveling history with Bonnie and Clyde and you can do that. But if you want me as a guide, no problem at all. I would just, my car seats five comfortably, and that would include me. So four of everyone. It's nice. It's good leg room. And we just go and just enjoy. And I take you to weird places, but I always bring you back. <laughs> it depends on the day. You know, if it's really far away, then it might take a whole day or something. I'm always open to that because that's the thing I like to do. Yeah, we, I just take my private car to do it. I'm hoping to expand this and buy a van and do all that stuff in the summer. I'm hoping that that will pan out. But with COVID and stuff, I, I had to kind of put stuff on the back burner. Right. I understand that. So your books are designed for people to be able to look at some of the things that we've been talking about and go check them out if they want to, right? That's correct. That's correct. Awesome. That's great. Well, thank you so much. I just would like to pick your brain for a long time. I love history and you have so many interesting facts. And I, to me, that's what makes it fun about living in an area, even driving a couple hours or more than that, just to check out the history. It's so important to know how things are, why they are the way they are, but it's also very interesting to know these things about the place you live in. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Susan. I appreciate this. This was fun. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. This has been Susan Supak speaking for the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Red River historian Robin Cole Jett. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.